Previously on Beta. What are you, some kind of magician? Who, me? Oh, hardly. That scar right below your elbow. You remember? Of course I remember. How did it happen? No, I mean it. I mean it. It's just somebody must have goofed. If I gotta stay here another day, I'm gonna go nuts! Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, author Tom Parada joins us to talk about bringing Tracy Flick back to life more than two decades after Reese Witherspoon played her in Alexander Payne's comedy, Election, which was based on Tom's novel. I wondered how she would think about what happened to her some 25 years later when she was an adult and a mother and, and a high school administrator. Also, writer Abby Benderer on whatever happened to the erotic thriller genre. Films like Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, and Wild Things. It is kind of funny to think that the decline of the erotic thriller really does kind of pair with when online porn was becoming increasingly popular and accessible. But first... James Burroughs. He's a man of many nicknames. The sitcom sorcerer, the Steven Spielberg of sitcoms, and the Concord of TV pilots, which would make him the James Burroughs of supersonic airliners. James has been making America laugh for half a century with his masterful direction of some situation comedies that I'm sure you're familiar with, like The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, and Will and Grace. His memoir is called Directed by James Burroughs. In his book and in our conversation, James shares the secrets of his success. He also expresses his appreciation for the man who helped launch his incredible career. I didn't know how big an influence he was on me because he was just my dad. He would trundle my sister and I off to rehearsals and we would kind of run around the back of the theater, didn't know what was going on. And uh, I like to say he taught me when I didn't know I was learning. Uh, I ended up at the Yale School of Drama and once I went there as a student there, you have to take courses in directing, acting, writing, stage managing, scene design. I began, as I took these courses, to realize how much I had learned just kind of watching my dad. And so after I graduated, I, uh, I started as a, a stage manager in the theater. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about how he, he worked and interacted with people? Well, he was, uh, he was a kind man. Mm-hmm. But he also knew what he wanted. He got it through kindness. He would not say, no, you have to do it this way. He would, uh, you know, if an actor had a suggestion, he'd experiment with that suggestion or they'd come up with another suggestion. He always made it feel like it was uh, a group decision uh, of what was funniest at that moment in the play so that the actor felt involved in it. That's how I've worked because actors are... Uh, are so valuable to what I do. So what I do is I try to create, uh, empower the actor to contribute. If the writer's work doesn't work at this certain moment, maybe we can find something that'll make it work. That was all from my dad. He was, you know, my dad was a playwright director, so as he was directing, he would rewrite. Right, and so, yeah, so actors, that's why actors so much and love you so much and enjoy working with you because you treat them as an equal and you treat them with kindness. Yeah, and it's a, it's a wonderful, happy experience on the set. 
Yeah. You worked on the sitcom Taxi, and you say that it was the toughest job you ever had. Why? It was my first resident directorship. I was hired to do all the shows. It was this incredible group of writers that had come over from MTM, James Brooks, Ed Weinberger, Stan Daniels, and Dave Davis. And I had a cast that was interplanetary. Bantha, what the hell's going on here? You're supposed to be out on the road. I ain't going, Louie. I got a problem. Oh, not again. The one on the left's the break. The one on the right's the gas. This was daunting for a man who, in 1978, had really no self-esteem in the directing world. You know, I, I went into this with a lot of trepidation. It was a, also, it was the first time four film cameras was used all the time on a situation comedy, which was another extenuating circumstance. And to try to put all these things together, to try to mold, mold the cast into the homogeneous group that I like on a show was really, really difficult. And I really worked hard on that show. In fact, Danny, Danny DeVito, uh, at the end of the first year, gave me a, a neon sign that he had made. And, and it was uh, a replica of an eye. And in the center of the eye was the word beads, B-E-A-D-S. Because he said, at the end of every week, I had beads in my eye. It was so difficult. And they still, Tony and Danny still call me Beads. You, along with Glenn and Les Charles, who you refer to affectionately as the brothers, you guys got a development deal with Paramount Pictures to create Cheers. Why did you want to do that? Well, we, uh, the Charles brothers were the producers of Taxi. So the three of us were on Taxi. That's not where we met. We had met on the Phyllis show, where they were story editors. And so when we re-met on Taxi, we had the same agent, uh, an agent so powerful he's only known as Broder. (laughs) And uh, he said, you guys should do your own show. So he went out and shopped, and there was a guy named Michael Zinberg who worked at uh, NBC, who was at MTM when the three of us were there. We made a deal, and it was time for us. We had paid our dues. We knew what to do. That's a lot of the problem now with so many of these shows. The people who get commitments to do shows have not paid their dues, have not gone through the gauntlet of what it takes to make a situation comedy. And so we had done that. And so we got this deal to do um, two for one, which which meant we made two pilots. They had to put one on the air. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you when Shelley Long decided to leave and then you guys brought in Kirstie Alley. Was that a difficult transition for to make? Oh, yeah. Why are you going to break up Edith and Archie? Yeah, you know? right. Well, this is the dynamo that's driving the show. What are we going to do? We were devastated. We understood. We understood what she wanted to do, and she was, she was phenomenal. Without mm-hmm. Shelley Long, Cheers doesn't get to year two. Without the Charles Brothers writing that character and Shelley's ability to play that character where half the men in the world wanted to sleep with her and the other half wanted to kill her and some, <laughs> and some wanted to do both, we don't, we don't get to year two. 
Ah, uh, yes. I would like to speak to the person in charge of female dehumanization. <laughs> what do you mean, speaking? <laughs> so we were, yeah, we were devastated. But, you know, we went back when we originally conceived the show. Uh, it was Sam working for a woman. When we redid it, we decided to go back to that old uh, chestnut that was in the trunk. And uh, we wrote the, the boys wrote the part for Rebecca Howe. And our casting director, Jeff Greenberg, came in and said, Kirstie Alley. And that was it. All right. I'll give you another chance. All right. Thank you. Thank you. But I want to make something very clear. Okay. You've just got one chance left. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, again in baseball ease. It's the bottom of the ninth. You've got two outs, two strikes, and no balls. <laughs> One of the proudest moments of your career was when Joe Biden was asked about same-sex marriage on a Meet the Press interview back in 2012. What did he say? He said that Will and Grace had done more for uh, the progression to gay marriage uh, than, any, uh, than anything else. So we were over the moon about that. Okay, that's just a straight guy's way of thinking that you and I could ever be a couple. Okay, first of all, Will should only be so lucky. Okay, so let's just clear that right up. <laughs> Second of all, you don't even know me that well. Why would you just assume that I was gay? <laughs> I finished? Okay, FYI, folks, most people that meet me do not know that I am gay. Jack, blind and deaf people know you're gay. <laughs> Tell me about like when you were first pitched the idea of Will and Grace and why you decided to do it and also to do the recent revival, the reboot. Well, when I read that script, uh, Max, Max Munchik and Dave Cohen wrote that script. It was an extraordinary script in the fact that it was a situation comedy that happened to have two gay characters. It was not a situation comedy about gay characters. It was just happened to have... Uh, these two characters. And it also had two women who were heightened characters too. So the show is played on a level a little above your ordinary living room sitcom because there's such energy amongst the four of them. So when I read the script, I had to do it. Uh, the boys had written this wonderful script. And when we first ran it in front of an audience four days before we shot it, the audience went crazy. They loved it. So I knew we had something special. But I also knew we had a problem with, in that 25% of the country wouldn't watch the show. Hmm. But once people came to the dance, again, it takes a long time in television for people to come to the dance. They loved that show. And they didn't care because it was so funny. They didn't care who the, those characters were. It was the funniest show I ever did. Yeah, do you have a favorite? This is a tough question to ask you, but as you probably learned by now, James, I'm all about asking the tough questions. Do you have a favorite scene or a favorite episode of Will and Grace that really stands out? There's, there's so many. Mm -hmm. uh, I did 246 of them, including the reboot. But um, there's one in the, in the reboot which is more heartfelt. I think Grace finds... Uh, a box of letters that Will has written to her. And there's one letter that's never been opened. How did I not read this letter? 
I mean, you went through so much after you came out, and I wasn't there for you. We don't have to talk about it. No, we do. I have to. Because that's the way the story of the gay guy and the straight girl is always told, isn't it? He broke her heart. Poor her. It is why I never say I'm sorry. And I have been playing the victim. So, I am going to say it now. Doesn't it feel good? <laughs> Still haven't said it. And it was Max's idea. It makes the point that when the boy comes out and is gay, it's always about the girl and how it's unfortunate for her. But Max's point was it's also unfortunate for the guy. So I thought that was extraordinary, something I never would have dreamed of. But Max, being a gay man, it had happened to him. So, uh, I, you know, there, and there's so many, there's so many outrageously funny shows, uh, including the live Will and Grace when it all takes place in Karen's bathroom. Uh, mm. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a really funny show. Yeah, definitely. You've spent 50 years making people laugh. What is the scene that you've directed that gets the biggest laughs from you? I have two or three. Okay. Uh, and uh, the first two are tied. Ooh. Number one is, uh, what does a yellow light mean from Taxi? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, and I'll never forget, uh, I went to New York on a trip and I took a couple of taxi scripts with me and, and I read that one on the plane and the stewardess came over to me, I was laughing so hard, and said, Sir, are you all right? What does a yellow light mean? Slow down. Okay. What? <laughs> yellow light mean? Slow down. Okay. What? The, the, the other one tied is uh, when Ross is about to ask Rachel out on a date and they're on the ledge, they're on the balcony of the apartment. Um, well, for a while now, I've been wanting to... Um... He's about to ask her out. He's yes, screwing up yes. the courage to do it. That's, that's... And a cat <laughs> jumps on Schwimmer's shoulder. And inside are Phoebe are Matt, Lisa, and Courtney singing Top of the World with their back to the window and back and forth across the window is Schwimmer trying to get the cat off his shoulder. We had a live cat when I shot the scene with Jen and David, but when we were inside, we had a, a fake cat, so that's why Schwimmer is so abusive to that, uh, to that uh, animal. Yeah, that's a great scene. What is next for James Burroughs? Is there any, you seem to have done it all. Is there anything you haven't done that you're still itching to do? It's probably not something I'm itching to do. I'd like to find a show, again, that makes me laugh like Will and Grace did. And, you know, I, I couldn't do all of them, but I would, you know, do yeah, maybe two and then another two and stuff like that just to keep the ligaments oiled. In December, I, did, I worked with uh, 
uh, Norman Lear on the live show in front yes. of the studio audience. Yeah, those were great. I had a great time doing. Yeah. I scared the crap out of me because I have <laughs> to be in a booth cutting the show live, which on all the shows I ever did, I never cut them live. They were uh, shot on film and delivered uh, to an editor, and then they were edited down. You know, I'd like to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd like to see you do more stuff. Not like you haven't done enough already. James Burroughs, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Directed by James Burroughs, and thank you for all the laughs, thousands of laughs that you've given us. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. James Burroughs is the author of the memoir, Directed by James Burroughs. You can find out more about James and his work at wpr.org slash beta. It's a very interesting work for the reader, having to put together all these different perspectives and kind of come up with the real sense of what's going on. Coming up, Tom Parada tells us what life is like now for his hardworking, overly ambitious character, Tracy Flick, who appears in his novel Election and the movie of the same name. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. We needed a lot of things at GMHS. A new roof, merit pay for outstanding instructors, better textbooks, smarter test prep, water fountains you can actually drink from, less meddling from the teachers union. The list went on and on. Did we need a hall of fame? Not really. Did I say that to Kyle? No, I did not. Why would I? I wasn't an idiot. I knew I'd need his support when I took over as principal, and it made no sense to alienate him before I even had the job. In fact, I suspected that if I disagreed with him in our first face-to-face meeting, I might not even get the job. So yes, I let him talk. I nodded and looked interested and muttered a few harmless words of encouragement. That's Tom Parada reading an excerpt from his novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win. He was reading from the point of view of Tracy. You may remember Reese Witherspoon's portrayal of Tracy Flick in Alexander Payne's black comedy, Election. The movie was based on Tom's novel of the same name. In the 1999 film, Tracy was an overachieving high school student who runs for student body president. But fast forward 20 years and Tracy is in a very different position. She's an assistant principal at Green Meadow High School in New Jersey, and she feels underappreciated and stuck. That's the premise of Tom's novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win. Tom tells us about working on what could now be considered his Tracy Flick prequel novel, Election. When I wrote it in 1993 and showed it to my then agent and some other people in the publishing business, people were really puzzled by it. And their their reaction was sort of, you know, this reads like a young adult novel, but there's all this sex and all this politics. And they sort of felt that it fell through the cracks of the publishing industry as it, as it existed back then. I actually wonder if I wrote it now that it would be considered a young adult novel just because they're much edgier than, than they were back then. But I, even then, I kind of, I don't think so. I think it's an adult novel. It's a political novel, but it's a very unlikely one. And I think people just didn't know what to make of it at that time. And, and uh, so it 
sat around in my drawer for a few years and I got really lucky. Some movie producers called me about a different book of mine. I just out of the blue, I said, hey, you know, I got this other book. It's sitting in my drawer. It's about a high school election that turns kind of cutthroat. And they said, well, send it along. And they really loved it. This is uh, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa, who uh, produced Election and Little Miss Sunshine and a bunch of other movies. And they really loved it. They got it to Alexander Payne. And really within a year, this movie was ready to go. And, and it actually then created an opening for the book finally to be published. But the book was always overshadowed by the film. It barely beat it into the public. Interesting. How, how did Reese Witherspoon's Tracy Flick in the movie, how did she differ from the Tracy Flick in your novel? So the Tracy Flick in my novel, I think, felt a little more mature and sexually confident. I think a, actually a really smart change that Alexander Payne and Reese Witherspoon made to make Tracy a little less overtly sexual and, and a little more vulnerable on that front. So she's like very powerful in, in terms of her ambition and, and her determination, but much more innocent sexually. And I think it actually was a good change. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're referring to, but maybe if certain older, wiser people hadn't acted like such little babies and gotten so mushy, then everything would be okay. I agree. And I also think that certain young and naive people need to thank their lucky stars and be very, very grateful that the entire school didn't find out about certain indiscretions that could have ruined their reputations and their chances to win certain elections. And I think certain older people, like you and your colleague, shouldn't be leching after their students, especially when some of them can't even get their own wives pregnant. And they certainly shouldn't be making slanderous accusations, especially when certain young, naive people's mothers are paralegal secretaries at the city's biggest law firm and have won many successful lawsuits. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. Why did you decide to revisit the character of Tracy Flick after nearly a quarter century? It wasn't a really conscious decision at the beginning of this project. I, I started a book about a, what I thought was going to be a book about a pro football player, who a, a former pro football player who is a, in his 40s, and he's starting to experience some uh, neurological symptoms that he thinks are related to concussions he got while playing. And his life is sort of falling apart and he gets brought back to his high school to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. When he arrives there to be honored, what he re runs into are all these people who resent him for things that he did, you know, back when he was a golden boy. And, and I started to write this story and I wrote it in, in the same way that I had written Election with these short chapters and multiple narrators. And Somehow the form of the novel made me think of Tracy again. And I, it just suddenly occurred to me like, well, maybe Tracy's here in this school. And when that happened, I, I thought, yeah, that's where she would be. You know, it was just one of those, it was a sense of discovery more than a, like a conscious decision on, on my part. But I, I think the deeper answer to your question is that the Me Too moment really made me think a lot about Tracy and, and the way that I had portrayed her attitude toward this brief uh, relationship she has with the teacher in election. And I wondered how she would think about what happened to her some 25 years later when she was an adult and a mother and, and a high school administrator. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, and you were you were right to do that because it's it's very fascinating. Now the football character you talked about, football player character, was that did he find his way into Tracy Flick can't win in the form of Vito Falcone? Yeah, he absolutely did. That that was Vito was the the place I started. I thought I was writing a novel called Hall of Fame because I thought it was such a interesting moment for male figures like that. You know, he was, as I said, a, a great athlete when he was young. And as a result, he was given all the sort of leeway that, that great athletes are given, you know. And he got a couple girls pregnant when he was in high school. He uh, he's had three wives when we meet him. He's just a guy who has left a lot of uh, wreckage in uh-huh. his wake, you know. And, you know, I think the Me Too moment really did feel like this moment when guys who'd gotten away with so much for decades were suddenly being called to account. That's why I wanted to write the Vito story. And he's still in there. And I think he's an important minor character. And in fact, you could say that the whole book is about Tracy and Vito on parallel tracks, you know, finally meeting in a very charged way late in the book. Mm -hmm. How has Tracy changed over the course of these 24 years? She's changed in the way that we all change when we go from being young and full of potential to being our our middle-aged selves with very specific lives and maybe regrets, but also achievements. I think that the main thing is Tracy expected big things from herself. She was on this trajectory. She was in Georgetown Law School and working as a congressional intern, and it looked like her political life was really about to begin and there was a kind of a a family emergency. She was the only child of a single mom and her mom was very sick and she had to take some time off from school to become a caretaker. And her life got derailed at that crucial moment when she was about 25 years old. And she ended up staying home and caring for her mom and becoming a substitute teacher, then a a full-time teacher, and then going to grad school at night and getting a PhD in education administration. You know, she has made a decent life for herself. She's a professional. She owns her own house. She has a child. But she feels like she sort of betrayed her teenage self, that she never got a shot at being the successful person that she thought she could be. And she had big plans. She thought that she could be the first woman president in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You chose to structure Tracy Flick Can't Win like your novel Election in as a series of monologues that are narrated by different characters. What do you think? I think it's very effective and it really made for a propulsive read. And I'm curious, what do you think you gain and what do you think you lose? Maybe, maybe you don't lose anything by using this structure. What you gain, I think, is a very, well, let me put it this way. The reader is the only person who actually understands what's happening. All of the characters have very partial visions of what they're up to. And the characters are sort of telling us what their motives are. And we're watching them act in the world. And we can see the difference between, you know, what they think they're doing and what other people think they're doing. It's a very interesting work for the reader, having to put together all these different perspectives and kind of come up with the real sense of what's going on. But I really love this idea of almost like a pseudo oral history of of a story being composed of all these different people testifying about their um, involvement in a particular situation. 
Mm-hmm. I love that phrase that you just used, pseudo-oral history. I think, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what it's like, and it, it works very well and re- really gets us in, invested in all of the characters. One of the most intriguing characters in the book, besides Tracy, of course, is Kyle Dorfman. Can you tell us a bit about Kyle? Yeah, so Kyle is a, a guy from this town, Green Meadow, where Tracy is uh, the assistant principal. He grew up there. And he went to the Bay Area for college and he became a tech entrepreneur in the early days of social media. And he created a virtual pet app called Barky. And <laughs> Barky made him a fortune. He says, uh, I won't say how much money I made because it's, it's, <laughs> it's really obscene. I think for most of the book, we, his story is I got worried about social media and what it was doing to culture and what it was doing to kids And my wife and I decided we would head back to my hometown and have a simpler life and get involved in local politics. It turns out to be a little more complicated than that, but that's the story that Kyle is telling. And so his big project is this Hall of Fame that uh, I mentioned in the uh, opening reading. He sort of offers Tracy a quid pro quo. He says, um, I will support your candidacy for principal if you support this Hall of Fame, because Tracy is the person that people go to in Green Meadow when they want to get something done. She's a really competent, effective uh, administrator and organizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of controversy over the Hall of Fame and who should be admitted into it. Patrick Somerville was a guest on our show Beta a while back, and he, of course, worked with you and Damon Lindelof while you were adapting the critically acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers, which is based on your great novel of the same name. And I want to play this clip for you. Patrick had this to say about that experience. So I got to watch for two years what it looked like when a TV writer who had made 120 whatever episodes of Lost, you know, with cliffhangers and twists and turns and a lot of TV stuff, was in a dialogue with a a novelist who was sort of protecting and uh, maintaining the spirit of the novel that he had had written. Yeah, I want want to ask you, Tom, what you remember about that experience, especially because if I recall correctly, you used all your, the content from your novel was used in, what, the first three or four episodes? Well, actually, the whole first season, I think, the we we definitely added uh, some things to it. But yeah, it was it was a fascinating experience. I, I love the way Patrick describes that because Damon and I really did come from very different ends of the storytelling spectrum. i'm I'm mostly a a realist and a comic writer, and he is, you know, coming out of this bold and and fun tradition of uh, comic books and science fiction and superhero stuff even. So we, we weren't natural collaborators, but I think Damon and, 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 you know, Patrick was actually a great person to have in the room because he could speak both of our languages and was often the guy who could, you know, come up with a third way that would satisfy both me and Damon. But I would also just say that as much as we argued and struggled. We we really came to trust each other and in the end was just so thrilled with the way that show came out and I felt that it went to places that I could never have brought it to on my own. Yeah, yeah. One reviewer has said that the main theme of a lot of your work is American masculinity and bro culture. What do you think of that observation? 
I think it is arguably true. I mean, you know, my early books, uh, Bad Haircut, a story collection set in the 1970s, and The Wishbones, they're, they're really about male friendships. And in election, I started to branch out and write more about women characters. And I think people often associate me with that. They say, hey, you're a guy who, the rare male novelist who puts women at the center of, of his books. And that would, Little Children, The Abstinence Teacher, Mrs. Fletcher, they all had women characters at the center. But I think the reviewer you quoted is correct in saying that all of those books also have male counterparts and to an extent, you know, I'd say that the real subject is just the way that gender has been, you know, evolving in our culture over the past, you know, 40 or 50 years. The gender and sexuality both, I think those are actually at the heart of my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Very well said. What are you working on now, if you don't mind my asking? You know, it was funny that after Tracy, which was the first time I'd ever written a sequel, I started to write a book. It's not a sequel to anything, but it is revisiting my version of the 1970s that I explored in um, Bad Haircut. But Bad Haircut was really about a kid telling the story of growing up. And this is much more about, you know, a middle-aged person looking back, looking back 50 years, um, really. The story is set in 1974. And I'm just so conscious as I age, you know, I'm not, I'm not an old person, but I'm I'm 60 years old, and I'm just so conscious of how far away some of the past seems. You know, you just think of how much has changed in those 50 years, and and yet how much of what was going on at that time is still expressing itself in our politics and, and how the way that the surface of life is so different, you get a sense of the weight of history at, at any given moment. Mm, very well said. Tom Parada, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Tracy Flick Can't Win. It's a very propulsive novel full of your usual dark humor. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Tom Parada is the author of the novel Tracy Flick Can't Win. You can find out more about Tom and Tracy at wpr.org slash beta. What I love about the femme fatale character is that there's always this like sort of level of con artistry to her just from like being sexy and being smart. Coming up, writer Abby Bender joins us to talk about her love affair with erotic thrillers. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Have you seen any good erotic thrillers lately? Chances are pretty good that you haven't because this subgenre of film isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. Back during the 1980s and the 1990s, erotic thrillers like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct were everywhere. Inspired by film noir, these thrillers featured femme fatales who were not afraid to use their sexuality to get what they wanted from unhappy men. Although, as Abby Bender told us, erotic thrillers are making a bit of a comeback on streaming services. Abby writes about film and fashion. She's also the author of the New York Times Magazine essay, Why I Love Erotic Thrillers. 
Abby joined us from her New York City apartment, and we have to admit, the city's sounds added a perfect touch to the subject matter. To me, I think of erotic thrillers, I think of Venetian blinds that cast shadows and mm. women wearing fabulous outfits and expensive homes. And it's just this very sort of sophisticated yet trashy vibe is, I think, the key to it. Mm -hmm. What makes an erotic thriller different from a film noir? Yeah, so film noir, I mean, obviously those were very much the template for the erotic thriller and mm -hmm. the erotic thriller owes a lot to it. I think what makes it different is how erotic thrillers are a bit more explicit, both in terms of what they show, showing sex scenes, showing nudity very, very often. I think in the 80s and 90s, you could show more, you could sort of bring in like these more modern themes of like yuppie culture and um, women in the workplace and things that were becoming more common then. So it's basically like the film noir template meets the sort of trashiness and more explicit sexuality and also some of the social and cultural concerns as well of the 80s and 90s. Mm, that's a good description. Well, when did you first become fascinated by erotic thrillers? One of the first ones I remember really enjoying was Wild Things, which is a bit of a later one because it's from 1998. And it has this, um, spoiler alert here, but it has this really wild twist ending. I just remember seeing that as a teenager and just being like, this is crazy, like, this is this is so fun. And then, like, from there, I realized, like, that genre was always something I really enjoyed because I've always really liked that sort of heightened style. Tell us a bit. You, you sort of sketched out what Wild Things is about, but can you tell us a, a little bit more about the plot without revealing any spoilers? So, basically, it's the kind of plot that would very likely uh, get canceled today or be called problematic today. It's mm. um, these two girls, played by Denise Richards and Nev Campbell, they accuse their school guidance counselor of sexual abuse. And it turns out that they sort of have been in cahoots. And then there's all these sort of twists and turns as like many, many levels of double crosses that are happening. Also, Bill Murray's in it as a sleazy lawyer. And it's just really funny to see Bill Murray in this kind of film. And... Mm. It's in Florida, so it has this very, like, sort of, like, hot, sweaty atmosphere. That is something that also comes up in erotic thrillers a lot, like, most famously, Body Heat, which is known for being a very sweaty movie that makes its title quite literal. In your essay, you talk about Nev Campbell's character and uh, the part she plays in the film. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that? There's a little bit of that classic, you know, blonde, brunette rivalry that you see a lot and have seen a lot in the culture going back to like Betty and Veronica comics and stuff with um, mm -hmm. Nev Campbell being the brunette, Denise Richards being blonde. And Denise Richards is rich and popular. Nev Campbell is kind of goth and she's considered like trailer trash kind of person because she's doesn't have as much money. She's like not from a stable background. And she Basically, it turns out she's the smartest person of all, and that really appealed to me, um, the idea of the outsider who can infiltrate, who can like infiltrate these spaces and be able to get away with things because they're being underestimated for whatever reason. Well, I've got a good pop quiz for you. <coughs> Multiple choice, of course. <coughs> Before sailing away on the Helios, Medea killed King Creon and the princess with... <coughs> 
what? A rock? A spear gun? Or... A little poison? Poison! Good guess. In most erotic thrillers, I feel like this isn't necessarily the case because a lot of times they are in very like high class sort of wealthy settings. Like in Basic Instinct, obviously Sharon Stone's character is like very wealthy and successful. But I think that there is always this idea of like the women in these movies being like a sort of force that comes in from the outside and like, you know, messes things up in interesting and exciting ways. Mm, yes. And in in Wild Things, Nev is playing a femme fatale, which is a famous archetype in film noir dating back to the 1940s. How did the erotic thrillers of the 80s and the 90s depict the femme fatale? It's complicated because on the one hand, I think the femme fatale is obviously quite rooted in male fantasy and is depicted as, you know, the homewrecker or the person who sort of throws the man's life off track. So that definitely is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But what I love about the femme fatale character is that there's always this like sort of level of con artistry to her that I find really interesting. She's able to sort of gain people's confidence and like sort, you know, sort of like keep them eating out of the palm of her hand just from like being sexy and being smart. And I feel like even if she is kind of rooted in male fears in a lot of ways, she's, I, I still find these characters very satisfying and interesting to watch. Mm-hmm, definitely. The erotic thriller rose to popularity during the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was president. And you say that this era was politically conservative, yet culturally trashy. So how did erotic thrillers explore this contradiction? I mean, I think you can see it a lot in an erotic thriller like Fatal Attraction. Glenn Close is obviously like this iconic femme fatale and she clearly disrupts um, Michael Douglas's very yuppie-ish existence. But then at the same time, at the end, it's like all the family unit getting back together. She gets killed. The couple, you know, Michael Douglas and his wife end up being fine. You know, they end up, it's a happy ending for this family kind of, even though they've been through a lot. And I think that's kind of, very much embodies that like Reagan era. There's like this trashiness, but at the same time, it's like, oh, the family can still be together and it's fine and we'll put this woman in her place. Ben, what a pleasant surprise. It's over, Alex. That's all finished. I told Beth she knows all about it. Why don't you speak to her? Why would I want to talk to her? This is Beth Gallagher. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you, you understand? It seems to me that on one hand, it is empowering for the women portraying these characters, but on the other hand, it's also kind of sexualizing them. How do women handle this Catch-22? I think, you know, there's this idea in film criticism that's very sort of talked about a lot and talked about, particularly in feminist film criticism of the male gaze and while mm -hmm. I definitely understand and acknowledge that that is in many ways what cinema is kind of built on, I also always get a little annoyed with this idea of the male gaze because I think the, 
you know, there's obviously a large female audience as well. And how can women watch these movies and how can they sort of find some subversive form of identification within them? Because for me watching these movies, you know, it's like, yes, I do think it would be really like these women are like powerful and cool. But then there's also, you know, just the elements of the style in terms of fashion and interior design and things like this, where it's um, it sort of pulls you in in a way where it like looks like a fashion magazine. And that's something that is kind of feminized. Very well said. One of the most famous, maybe the most famous erotic thriller is Basic Instinct, which was released 30 years ago. I'm curious about what your take is on Sharon Stone's portrayal of Catherine Trammell, the crime novelist and murder suspect. I feel like she's obviously an incredibly charismatic performer. I feel like she brings to that role that sort of like icy, the Hitchcock blonde kind of energy almost. Yes, yes. So I love that sort of classic element that you have there. And then it's like kind of mixed with that sort of very like forceful, kind of like, I'm gonna get what I want, more like late 80s, early 90s femininity, the sort of, even though she's, her character is, you know, an author who like lives in a fancy house, there is like a businesswoman quality to her where she like knows what she wants. She knows how to get it. You working on another book? Yes, I am. It must really be something making stuff up all the time. Yeah, it teaches you to lie. How's that? You make stuff up, it has to be believable. It's called suspension of disbelief. I like that, suspension of disbelief. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. The most famous scene is when the Catherine Trammell character intimidates the men who are interrogating her. Can you tell us about this scene? The most rewound scene in cinema history, as I think some people mm -hmm. have referred to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so where she's being interrogated, she's in a room full of men and she uncrosses her legs and reveals herself. It's the kind of scene where it's so absurd and you're watching this and you're like, who would do this? Like, this is crazy. But at the same time, it's like, it fits because these movies are built on these kind of crazy actions and that's what makes them escapism. As we entered the 2000s, we witnessed the decline and fall of the erotic thriller. Why? I think a large part of the decline of the erotic thriller has to do with the change in the way people would consume film and also the way, honestly, people would consume pornography because it is kind of funny to think that the decline of the erotic thriller really does kind of pair with when online porn was becoming increasingly popular and accessible. I feel like a lot of it has to do with like the sort of increase in political correctness as much as I find that phrase a little bit annoying, but mm -hmm. the sort of, you know, more like vigilant and like less wanting to offend sense that sort of took over the culture, especially I think, you know, it's kind of like post 9-11 that these films stopped being quite as much of a force as they were. And I think the sort of having a more somber national mood might have had something to do with that as well. 
Very well said. Is there a film you can point to that's been released in, I don't know, the last five years or since we were talking about the decline and fall of the erotic thriller beginning in the 2000s? Is there a film that has come out recently that you think has kind of elements or of the erotic thriller or comes close to being an erotic thriller? There's, there have been some erotic thrillers on uh, streaming services, including most recently Adrian Lin's latest movie, Deep Water. I wanted to say you're a brick for how nice you are about me seeing your wife. <laughs> seeing my wife. I mean, it's all innocent, of course, you know, but some guys, some husbands, they get a little... Yeah, jealous. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been around here long enough where you've heard the name Martin McRae? Uh, the guy, yeah, the guy who's gone missing. He saw a lot of my wife. I would say that's like the biggest recent one and one that's kind of has brought a lot of these conversations about the genre back into the forefront. There's been smaller ones as well that have been on streaming services and in a really interesting way, it is kind of replicating the way some of these erotic thrillers were in the 90s, where there was a very a booming home video market for erotic thrillers, and not just the big ones like A Basic Instinct or A Fatal Attraction, but also very like smaller titles that had not as well-known casts, but had a lot of, you know, the nudity and the sexy vibe and the cool, you know, the cool production design. When we talk about erotic thrillers, you know, it's, I write mostly about these big mainstream ones, but then there was a whole sort of large market in the 90s of erotic photos on home video. So it's interesting to see that it's kind of like streaming is our home video now. And once again, erotic fillers are, you know, something that can find a home there. Definitely. Abby Bender, thank you very much for joining us. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Abby Bender is a writer and the author of the New York Times Magazine essay, Why I Love Erotic Thrillers. Find out more at wpr.org beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, James Burroughs, Tom Parada, and Abby Bender. If you want to hear it again or catch up on past episodes, click over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast catcher and click subscribe, follow, and like. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our technical director and producer is Steve Gotcher. You ought to put some warmth into the place. You don't want to reflect on your personality. The show was engineered by Tyler Ditter. I don't make any rules. I go with the flow. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Very unpredictable. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. Pretty soon I'll know you better than you know yourself. Mm-hmm.